Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. This is John Powers, your host. And today we have an incredible conversation with the wonderful Miranda Ballantyne, who's the CEO of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, REBA. Miranda joined the organization last fall and really has led it through its rebirth in May as an independent trade association, uh, working with members such as Google and Facebook and GM, among others, who are seeking to procure renewable energy across the U.S. They're uniquely uh, positioned, as we'll talk about throughout the conversation. But Miranda's uniquely positioned to lead this organization as well. Uh, she, prior to this, was the CEO of Constant Power, but had been the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Energy, uh, where I work closely with her, as well as uh, she served as a Director of Sustainability and Renewable Energy uh, at Walmart. So she's, she's seen uh, all sides of this uh, renewable energy space. And I think you'll find our conversation both interesting and fascinating and help understand what these members are looking for. And I think you'll find this conversation fascinating and it'll help really provide some light on the trend we're seeing in the industry of growing corporate procurement and renewable energy. Miranda Ballantyne, thank you so much for joining us at Experts Only. Always a pleasure to talk to you, John. So for the audience, I've known Miranda a long time. She's uh, been an incredible mentor of mine. She's had a great set of experiences working in the private sector, working in government and the Pentagon, sort of back in the the public sector. She's she's led and, and sold companies. You know, it's really unique to have that diversity within an individual and a leader and, and bringing that to the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance I think is helping set the organization apart from what's out there. But before diving into all of that, Miranda, I just, just want to step back and talk about, you know, you growing up in Colorado, what led you into the the energy space? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a funny story, John, because my undergraduate work was in a completely unrelated field. I studied Uh, neuropsychology as an undergrad. So I spent my undergrad days running rats through mazes and dissecting brains. Uh, Really? Yeah. So so really unrelated uh, entirely, uh, but quickly sort of discovered that I probably wasn't meant to work solo in a laboratory somewhere. I'm just too extroverted as a human. Uh, so so spent a little bit of time just out in the working world and discovered I, I loved business. And also grew up in in uh, parts of the world where I had cultivated a real passion for both the environment but also for international development. So how I got into all this, all all this crazy clean energy work, was actually when I first moved to Washington D.C. about 2000. I started working for a small D.C.-based nonprofit. Really, actually more focused, or I was more drawn to it for the international development and poverty alleviation work. Um, It was called the Solar Electric Light Fund. Um, It was a small NGO that brought solar power to remote parts of the developing world. And as you know, access to clean, affordable electricity is really critical to improving people's health outcomes, educational outcomes, economic outcomes, without basic electricity services. It's very hard to break the cycle of deep, deep poverty in in remote parts of the world. 
And so that's really where I became very passionate about clean energy and the role that clean energy can play in solving the world's toughest challenges. Um, And then from there, decided to get a master's degree in business administration because I found I did really enjoy being in the private sector. And so focused my master's work on uh, energy and the environment and then had the great fortune of being able to do some consulting work here in D.C. and had clients across the spectrum of of large corporations and uh, clean energy investors, as well as most of the large environmental organizations. And that's really what led me to Walmart. I became uh, very interested in what the private sector was doing around sustainability and clean energy and uh, just had an opportunity to to join the team at Walmart and in the early days of launching and, and maturing and growing the Walmart sustainability team. And then my career has sort of grown from there. So, so a little dichotomy of working at a small nonprofit, doing interesting work to working at Walmart and then working at the Pentagon, how, you know, in those different environments, right, you're, you're having uh, a lot of different, uh, probably experiences working within bureaucracy versus sort of a more entrepreneurial uh, endeavors and sort of the nonprofit space. You know, what are some of the sort of biggest lessons you learned once you got into the uh, the Walmart space uh, and then even the Pentagon space in terms of leadership, not so much on the energy side, but in terms of sort of leading organizations uh, and, and driving change? So I think one of the greatest things that each of us can learn about ourselves professionally is whether we are more entrepreneurial by nature or whether we're more intrapreneurial by nature. They are rather different skill sets, um, different different tolerance for ambiguity, different tolerance for process or lack of process. I have seen entrepreneurial people go inside of large organizations and just really hate it because the amount of process and so-called bureaucracy really frustrates people that are naturally entrepreneurial. Um, conversely, people that are very entrepreneurial thrive in those environments and really bring a skill set of persuasion and influence and the, the number of zeros behind each ton of carbon emissions that you can influence when you're working within an organization the size of Walmart, the fortune number one company in the world. Um, when you're working within an organization the size of uh, the U.S. Department of the Air Force, largest energy user in the nation. It, you know, when you can, when you're inside those size of organizations, you can really have a profound, profoundly significant impact in the world. But it does require a different, a different skill set than the entrepreneurial skill set, which is more break things from the outside and and drive uh, change that way. So I think that's one of the most important things one can learn about themselves in their career is uh, what skill set are they most comfortable wielding and where will they where will they thrive? Yeah, so let's, you know, for those that don't, that aren't aware, Miranda served as the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force uh, within the Energy Division. It's hard to explain in a bio, but really within the overseeing energy across the Air Force. And you, you know, you you came in at a time when the Air Force was was making some progress, but you really helped sort of shape and drive the policy that's still being uh, implemented there today. If for those that don't follow, the Pentagon's doing really aggressive and exciting stuff in the the renewable space. But 
from that experience, right, leading that uh, size of an entity, you know, how do you how do you then go and share lessons with folks that are working in the Starbucks of the world, right, and the Amazons and some of the people that are members of Reba today? And are there are there sort of lessons that you share with them about working within that bureaucracy and how they? Because I imagine they're facing some of the similar challenges, right, where what they do what they do on a day to day basis is not the main mission of the company, but it enhances the main mission of the company, right? Right. Well, I think, and I think you you just hit the nail on the head there, John. It, it it really is about aligning with the organization's core mission. So at Walmart, Walmart's core mission is saving people money so they can live better. Clean energy aligns perfectly with that mission. Uh, clean energy allows current current citizens to live better lives and allows the next generation to live a better life. And at today's prices, clean energy helps companies like Walmart and Starbucks save money uh, today and in the future. When When you're talking about a military mission, distributed clean energy generation is not only a an important play from a, the perspective of a resilient mission and the ability for the Air Force to accomplish its mission around the world, but it's also a supply chain free source of fuel. So an adversary might be able to cut off my diesel supply chain, might be able to cut off my coal supply chain, but can't cut off the wind or the sun. So it, it really is all about identifying how the clean energy that you're looking to uh, procure aligns with your organization's mission. And that varies by company, but the fundamental perspective of aligning with your mission is the same, regardless of what type of organization you're talking about. So let's, speaking of organizations, let's talk a little bit about the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, uh, which you're the CEO. So can you sort of introduce folks to, to Reba and the mission and, you know, in that, talk a little bit about the history. How did Reba come to be and, and become the organization it is today? Yeah, sure. Of course. So the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, or Reba, as we call it, is the largest group of clean energy buyers. So it's the demand side of the clean energy equation that have come together to, to launch this trade association with a singular vision. And our singular vision is a resilient zero carbon energy system where every organization has a viable path to buying renewable energy. Now, what's really special about this alliance is that most trade associations, if you think about it, John, most trade associations are aligned around a particular industry or particular sector, Uh, whereas Reba's buyer members are really across virtually every industry and every sector. So if you look at our leadership circle alone, we have auto manufacturers with General Motors. We have CPG companies like Johnson & Johnson. We have a number of tech companies like Salesforce, Google, Facebook, Hewlett Packard Enterprises. We have uh, major brands and retailers like Walmart and the Walt Disney Company. Uh, it's, it's really very broad, and that's just the leadership circle alone. 
Um, our leadership circle alone has annual revenues of about one and a quarter trillion dollars. So it's a very significant movement of large companies. Um, again, all aligned around a single vision, which is really rather unique from a uh, from a trade association perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if you look at the. We've, we've obviously talked to a lot of the different players with. It's SIA and OWIA and, and ACOR on this, on this podcast, and uh, they represent very specific parts of the industry and the players in that industry. And a lot of the same folks that are within your membership may play a role in those, helping to influence the policies uh, to drive more renewables. But your members have a very unique uh, demand. And I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the role they're playing on the policy side. But I do want to just go back to uh, in, in May of this year, you guys announced sort of the relaunch of an independent trade association, basically breaking off and absorbing parts of the World Wildlife Fund, Rocky Mountain Institute, BSR, uh, World Resource Institute. Talk for a second about that experience and, and how you brought those players together and what you, know, what you sort of see as the, the vision now that those teams are, have come into one place. Yeah, it's really incredible, actually, because the idea for REBA goes all the way back to the fall of 2013, when the World Wildlife Fund brought together for the first time a group of large clean energy buyers. There were about uh, 12 or 13 large companies in the room, many of the leaders that we've been talking about. So, you know, Walmart and Google and Johnson and Johnson and, and Coca-Cola and General Motors and Hewlett Packard. It really came together in 2013 to talk about how could we better leverage our demand side uh, capabilities and power to drive the clean energy future? And what barriers were we each facing that we might be able to better tackle together than we could on our own? And it was, it, it was at that meeting that this idea of a demand side trade association was, was first germinated. But back then, and it's, it's hard to imagine that was only six years ago, not quite six years ago, there just weren't that many companies actively transacting in the clean energy markets. Right. And we just simply didn't have critical mass. Uh, so this group of, of really uh, phenomenal leading environmental NGOs with WWF, WRI, the World Resources Institute, RMI, the Rocky Mountain Institute, and BSR, who at that time was the Business for Social Responsibility. I think they're just BSR now, sort of like uh, Prince, right? right. Or, <laughs> so they're, they're just BSR. Right. Uh, so they these four environmental NGOs came together and said, hey, let's really focus on, on function over form. And they each took on one of the big barriers that these large buyers had identified and, and started to build programs around them. Uh, and really remarkably, as someone who's worked in and with the environmental NGO community for a long time, um, the partnership between these four NGOs from the get-go was just incredibly strong and, and remarkable. Uh, you know, no competition for resources or relationships, just a really mission-first uh, partnership. And so those programs were actually wrapped in the brand name of Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, even as early as 2014. So the brand has been around and the programs have been around for several years. Well, fast forward to 2017 and the, the scale of these programs, which I consider 2014 to 2018, 2017, sort of the pilot phase, and the scale and the demand for these services just grew exponentially. So by the end of 2017, 
you know, only only a few years later, uh, that community of large energy buyers had grown from that original 13 to about 200 buyers participating in that community of programs. So it really had just grown exponentially. And many of those original companies kind of stepped back and said, hey, look at this. Now we do have the scale to really launch a trade association. And the value of a trade association, John, as you know, and as many of your listeners know, is that it really gives us a lot of freedom to not only do the educational part of our mission, but also to engage much more actively in policy and legislative and regulatory uh, proceedings to ensure that the policy environment supports the clean energy markets that our buyers are looking to, to have. So in, in 2018, those four NGOs sat down together all the way up to the CEO level. Um, and again, I, I just think it's an incredible statement to the, the personalities and the mission focus of those four CEOs, Jules Kortenhorst, Carter Roberts, Andrew Steer, Aaron Kramer, um, that they were willing to spin off their programs. They spun off resources. They spun off people. They spun off relationships with some of the largest brands in the world into a new business-led trade association. I've really never seen anything like it. It's 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 quite remarkable. Yeah, it, it, you know, you talk about scale and growth. I mean, in parallel to that scale and growth of uh, of a group like Rebo the scale and growth of the corporate procurement has just continued to skyrocket. I just recently had on Lisa Jacobson from Business Council for Sustainable Energy and Ethan Zindler from Bloomberg New Energy Finance or uh, Bloomberg NEF as they call it now uh, to talk about the fact book. And, you know, amazing takeaways that the corporate PPAs grew 300% from 2017 to 2018, right? A lot of your members and others are, are now getting into the game and, and, the, the space is growing. What I, w- I think is fascinating about that um, is not just that folks are are taking an active role now in acquiring and procuring their own energy, right? You flash back 10 years ago and people paid the utility bill. Now they a lot of these sophisticated buyers that, you, that are your members have sophisticated energy procurement shops. Even ones that don't are looking to find ways to get involved. But they're also playing a major role in terms of policy. So when you look at a place, um, I'm going to pick on Virginia here for a second, you know, Virginia's has struggle putting the right renewable energy programs in place. But then when big players like Microsoft or, uh, or um, Apple come in and say, we won't move our data centers here until you have renewable goals, it changes the dialogue completely. And you're now seeing just great strides from Dominion Power, right? Putting massive PPAs out there. How do you sort of shepherd those uh, those voices from all the different members to sort of have an impact on on policy? You know, there was so much in what you just said, John. Lots uh, there. Know, sorry. Going, <laughs> all, going all the way back to Ethan and and Lisa. You know, this is such an amazing community of people that work on these issues. I, I was on the phone with Ethan this morning. I'm having lunch with Lisa next week. It's just an incredible group of people. So. For any of your listeners that are not in the industry thinking about it, and you just want to work with a really cool, passionate, smart group of people, this is the place to be. Yeah, I agree. Um, not that's why I started the podcast. <laughs> not, yeah, that's why I started the podcast. <laughs> so it's you know it's full of smart people from across political spectrums, from across different backgrounds. I just think it's a really it's a really cool place to be. Um, it's it's got something for business people for 
independence people, for national security people, for clean energy. It's just, it's a great space. So enough of that soapbox. Uh, <laughs> yes, buyer, corporate buyers, and I would say all large buyers, not just corporates. So REBA also has cities as members. We have universities mm-hmm. as members. We have healthcare systems. I would say that the large energy buyer space is really booming. Um, Lisa and Ethan were right. For for large-scale deals, it about tripled between 2017 and 2018. It was a banner year with uh, 6.6 gigawatts of large-scale renewables uh, announced, deals signed, and a huge increase in new buyers. So we went from 31 different buyers in 2017 to 76 buyers in in 2018, um, dramatic increase. Um, Interestingly, you're not seeing that same dramatic increase in new developers doing projects. I think what we're seeing is buyers going with developers that have a strong track record. So I think that's that's right. That's kind of an interesting little sidebar. Uh, But yes, last year was a banner year. As of May of this year, we're already at one and a half gigawatts of announcements, and it's gone up even since May. So we're we're on track for another real banner year. You're you are absolutely right that policy, regulatory, legislative uh, interventions. I would anticipate you're going to see much greater in uh, an increase of activity from the buyer community, and and you're right that states and state policymakers definitely sit up and listen when there are big companies, whether it's a data center or a manufacturing company with the promise of new jobs coming into their market. It does, it does open some doors to have that, that power, but the, uh, so to speak, no pun intended, Um, but, but I do want to point out that, um, the, the REBA members that are really engaged on the policy side are really focused on game-changing policies that allow all types of energy buyers the opportunity to choose where their electrons come from and what kind of electrons they're interested in. Um, and I think that's a really important point to make because I do think that some folks feel like it's a little self-serving for a data center to come in and say, well, I want green power. Um, and so create a special policy that works for right. me. Give me the special tariff just for me. Right. And yeah. and you did, I mean, you have seen some of that happening and, and less out of self-serving interest and more to start a conversation and start a dialogue. But what you're what you're already seeing is a change in how those discussions are happening. How can we really change the system so that we can get to a zero carbon energy system very rapidly? We look at the time frame that the IPCC has put out for us, and we have a super short window to get to a global grid that's 60% renewable on top of a whole bunch of other zero carbon energy sources like nuclear. So we don't have a long time and company by company bespoke solutions really simply aren't going to work. So the great thing about the REBA community is that it's really focused on game-changing, market-changing policies and regulations that make uh, our vision the second half of our vision, I don't know if you caught it, but the second half of our vision is every organization has a viable path to buying clean energy. So it's not just 
these guys there because they come with new jobs or those right. guys there because they have the biggest lobbying voice. Well, I think it's so important because I think a lot of the, you know, the fact that the, the Starbucks and the Googles and the Apples can can put resources into policy teams and energy procurement offices is 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 really important. But how do you get the the mid level companies that that don't have that capacity um, the access? And that's exactly what you're you're creating. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of the cultural awareness that's happening around renewables today. You know, we talk a lot on the show about sort of, I think we're living in a, a fascinating moment on, on climate change and a lot of that's being driven by renewables. I mean, you had Anheuser-Busch devoting Super Bowl airtime to win energy for their beer. Uh, you've got companies like Starbucks who, who tout their, their positive announcements and, and, and others. You know, where for your members do you sort of see their voice playing a role in the sort of cultural awakening we're having in the space? You know, I think it, it varies quite a lot. I, I, I do think that when you have sort of great American heartland brands like Budweiser giving clean energy a prominent feature, it, it really does sort of democratize clean energy yeah. Um, I mean, you had to see this at the Pentagon too, right? When you talked about sure. with the Air Force, people who were not as aware of what was going on, it definitely perked them up, right? Yeah. And, and you know, when it comes to wind and solar, I think I think what's really been game changing is these are just not seen as as um, new technologies anymore. These are right. these are technologies that are proven. There is uh, no technological risk. Uh, being taken by the off-takers or the developers or the financiers. I think we've seen a big shift in in how projects are financed, and you can speak to that better than I can because the technology risk has just come down. That's not really a factor anymore in in project finance, whereas in the the not-so-distant past, it still was considered some technology risk. Yeah, I remember just a few short years ago, we one of your members, when I was working at the White House, we had one of your members come in, a very senior person, and I won't name name her, but she was having trouble at her, at her company. They were doing tremendous stuff around renewables, but one of their senior C-suite executives saw that Sun Edison had crashed and just assumed the whole solar market was gone. Right. right. And it was right. just that not understanding what was happening in the space, uh, they just sort of tied it to a stock of one company. And now I think people are starting to see that perception change, right? It's, it's, this is a broad, this is no longer an alternative energy. It's a mainstream approach. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. So what we find is that our members talk about their clean energy projects from, from a range of perspectives. Yes, they are absolutely focused on doing their part to solve the climate challenge, the climate crisis, really. C&I, energy, commercial and industrial energy users, are the number one source of energy-related greenhouse gas emissions in this country. Uh, and so they know that, that the power needed to run their facilities, to manufacture their products, is a, a singular significant challenge uh, causing the climate crisis, and they want to solve that. They believe it's their moral duty to solve it, um, and they know that uh, we as humans need energy to have, coming back to how I started my conversation and how I started my career, without power, you can't have strong economies. You can't have healthy economies. You can't have strong education. So these companies know that power is needed 
in order to to have all of those things. And they want to do so in a way that doesn't compromise our children and grandchildren's ability to, to live on the planet. So that is an important part of their communications. At the same time, an important part of their communications is that these investments and these choices are good for the bottom line, are good right. for shareholders. Uh, they're good for our country's resilience. They're good for our country's energy security challenges that, that they are also all dealing with. It's not just the Pentagon that has concerns about grid security and grid vulnerability. So it, it varies a lot what a member chooses to focus on in their communications, depending on that particular company's interests. So I want to end with two sort of final questions, Miranda. The first, we've been had a sort of regular theme in the last few episodes talking about sort of diversity within the industry. Uh, you know, SIA has an initiative pushing for diversity. We clean capital uh, are pushing that for ourselves, but we also have talked to really phenomenal leaders in the space that are, that are women and, and, uh, and veterans and, and, and others. You know, how are you seeing uh, within your members uh, sort of a, a push for diversity within its own ranks? Oh, that's such an important question, John, and one that I think our industry is challenged with. I, I'm, I'm very proud that at REBA, we have incredible gender diversity, ethnic diversity, diversity of educational background. And when you come to REBA events, that diversity is not as, as broad as I think we all would like. You know, part of that stems from the fact that uh, there's a little pun stems from the right. fact that we are in a STEM industry. And as you and I know, as folks that have thought about this and studied this and, and tried to promote it in the military, you know, in the military, the, the part of the Air Force that I was in was really overseeing the civil engineering career field, which was not a highly diverse career field, although the Air Force tends to have uh, greater diversity than some of the other services, with the exception of the um, of the Coast Guard, which I think has the best diversity uh, of the services. But, you know, when you look at the STEM industries, it really goes back to childhood and building that pipeline of uh, people of diverse backgrounds and and different genders and interest in um, STEM fields all the way back to childhood. Because as you get closer and closer to career age, you see that that diversity get smaller and smaller. And right. when you're trying to hire people, you've got a certain pipeline. So we as a community really do need to be thinking about how we engage really all the way back to the elementary school level, um, making sure that that women and people of color and of different ethnic backgrounds have an opportunity to go talk to elementary school kids, talk to middle school kids, mentor them, get engaged with them. And the energy industry, I would say, is really not particularly different than most other STEM fields. Right. So I want to go back to um, the time when you were in Colorado coming out of, uh, of high school or coming out of college and uh, you were dissecting brains of frogs or whatever you said you were doing. Uh, if you could take yourself to grab a cup of coffee and give yourself a piece of advice, what would you say? Oh, gosh. I think what I would say is embrace the diversity of your career. Uh, for for some people, you know really young what you want to do and you're single-minded and your education aligns with your with your profession. Uh, and for many others of us, it, it's not that way. And that's that is okay. And it took me until I was about 40 before I really got comfortable with 
with my own set of boundaries in what I wanted in a career. And for me, it really comes down to from my career, I need to be making the world a better place in some form or fashion. Um, I need to be having fun. I need to be learning and I need to be able to support my family. Now that's a pretty broad set of guardrails. It doesn't work for everyone, but it took a couple of decades of people telling me, you got to pick, you got to pick, you got to pick before I got comfortable with, actually, I don't, I don't got to pick. Right, uh, right. It's, it's okay to work in retail one day and in the Pentagon the next day and start up a trade association the next day. That's, that's okay to have a career that way uh, if it works for me. And it's also perfectly okay um, to have a singular career that is very focused on one industry and be a deep expert in that. Um, it's a personal personal journey. And so I would go back to that young lady and tell her, for you, it's okay to embrace that diversity. That's, a, that's great, great advice. I, uh, my dad worked at Allstate for 35 years and there were many points throughout, throughout my career. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and then finally I was working <laughs> in the White House. He's like, oh, I get it, I get it. Um, <laughs> awesome. Rand, thank you so much for your leadership in the space and thank you so much for being part of the, the show I uh, look forward to being an active member in Reba Clean Capital. Uh, we'll be joining very soon. And uh, if folks are interested in joining, how do they learn more? They can go to rebuyers.org, rebuyers.org. Unfortunately, we don't get reba.org because Reba McIntyre owns all of those. <laughs> so rebuyers.org, and you can go to the to the membership section or or give me a call or an email, and we're happy to do uh, talk through the value and benefits of membership. Yeah. Th- thanks for the, the, the fascinating conversation. I look forward to having you back as the, the organization grows and the, your, your members continue to make just incredible strides in, in changing the way that, that our country uh, uh, acquires its, its, its energy. Uh, I want to say special thanks to our producer, uh, Carly Batten, and our intern, uh, Courtney Flynn, for their hard work. And you can always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And if, as always, please provide your thoughts on other guests. Uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.